It's a beautiful day here on Easy Street Restaurant Bar Performance Hall. We are coming to you live. Welcome. We welcome ourselves to you once again. Oh, boy. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. I'm also not a radio host. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Scott Wright, and I am a mediocre journalist. Katie Givens over here, and I'm not a lawyer. And thank you so much for joining us today. Follow us on all of our social media platforms and listen to us on all the different platforms. I'm not going to go into those. By now, you know you know what I'm talking about. I hope they know them because it sounds like you don't know I them. Maybe. <laughs> uh, but you know what to do with that. Also, email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com with your idea for a case. And thank you to those who have. We have used several of those, right? I just did the noise that I was critical of you for doing. I just did it. Did you? I did. Before we talk, uh, mm-hmm. before we turn on the microphones, we all sit around and talk for a few minutes and yep. we all kind of critique each other. We all listen yep. to the previous episodes and there's this, I make a noise where I pop my lips before I start to talk. And I just did it. And you just did it yep. after pointing it out to me as I requested that you do. Yes. And I appreciate that. And I'm, and I'm pretty, gonna... pretty rough on my S's. So I'm going to. Is that a form of a Freudian, Freudian slip? It, uh, probably. Probably. But, but I'm not a doctor, so I don't know. Yeah. Let's don't get into that today. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of you for your five-star reviews and your wonderful your wonderful words and your suggestions. We love all of those. Continue to email us. Give us suggestions in person and if you see us. continue to keep your one-star reviews to yourself. Mm-hmm. Please do. Keep yeah. those right in your pocket. Thank Anything you. four stars and below, just keep those in your pocket. Yeah, just tell us when you see us. Yeah, yeah. We, we care about, about it then, but on app, we don't care on right. the Apple podcast. <laughs> so today we have a very famous crime that occurred in the state of alabama in fact it may be the crime that people think of when they think of a very famous crime that happened in the state of alabama this will this crime will probably be at least in your top two or three. I would think so. Yeah. Just unfortunately. It's yes. the one in the history books. Mm-hmm. Correct. So Scott. Yes. What are we, do- what are we talking about today, today? We are going to talk about the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And I have been practicing saying that since I drove to the 16th Street Baptist Church on Saturday to look at it with my own eyes, knowing good and well that I was going to stumble through it at some point, and I haven't yet, but bear with me, and I am predicting now that at some point today, I will completely destroy my attempt to pronounce the 16th Street Baptist Church. You sound very eloquent I'm to me. doing it very moment. slowly. Okay. Just get, wait till I and get you, excited. You also, kaboom. you took some wonderful pictures that we will put on our social media platform. It was a mm-hmm. perfect overcast day. There were no shadows. Uh, I walked around the church a couple of times and I went across the street to Kelly Ingram Park where part of this story will take place. And it was uh it was a there were a lot of young people there. It looked like maybe college students who were at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute which is right across the street. There were uh, there was a lot of activity there on a on a pleasant Saturday afternoon. It was about noon when I got there. Maybe a little bit before noon. But a good crowd of people that were there to learn about, unfortunately, this horrible thing that happened in in Alabama. And because we are a true crime podcast of things that take place in Alabama, that's this is really one of the seminal events, like you mentioned, that if you think of Alabama and crime, 
This is probably in your top two or three, unfortunately. Yes, yes. But it is. Okay, so what we're going to do is, I, I, I didn't know exactly how far to go back into the history of the civil rights movement. So this crime that took place in Alabama in, in the 60s is something that it's, it's very important, I feel like, that we handle with reverence and dignity. And it's hard to know how far to go back in order to explain exactly what happened in Birmingham on September the 15th, 1963. So I'm going to go back some distance and we will figure out as we go along if it's appropriate to go back as far as I have. So in 1896, Placey versus Ferguson was a Supreme Court case that ruled that separate but equal is an acceptable way to handle race in the United States of America. That led to Jim Crow laws in the early 1900s. The NAACP was formed in 1909 to respond to Jim Crow laws that basically took what was a decision that said separate but equal in education is acceptable. Jim Crow laws made separate but equal acceptable across the board in business, uh, restrooms, bus stations. It made it okay because a white majority was in charge of the legislature in all these southern states, they passed their own laws based on Plessy v. Ferguson that made segregation writ large across the South and really across the entire nation. So that has happened in 1896 and the Jim Crow laws in the early 1900s. Let's fast forward. And there's a ton of places we could stop and start and tell this history of the civil rights movement. But we're going to fast forward to February of 1946 and it's really hard to say where the civil rights movement began, but this is when a man named Isaac Woodard, who was a decorated World War II veteran, came home from, he had been honorably discharged from the uh, United States Army. He had been in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. He was in a bus, still in his uniform, coming home from fighting for democracy around the world and got dragged off of a bus by a sheriff in South Carolina and was beaten to the point where he was permanently blinded. Wow. Never to see again. So, President Harry Truman got wind of this. And the next year, he spoke to the NAACP in June of 1947. By June of 1948, Truman had signed an executive order that desegregated the U.S. Armed Forces and the entire federal government the first time in history that a U.S. president had used an executive order to implement civil rights policy. I would argue that that is one of the beginnings of the civil rights movement in this country, but you can ask 20 different people who are a lot more knowledgeable about civil rights than me, and they would probably give you 20 different answers. Well, and I think that there were so many small, and not, I mean, small as opposed to the federal government, but there were small movements that had been happening and, yes. and things that were going on in, in different pockets of the nation. Right. And then this is sparked, you know, and then it gets all, it's bigger. Yeah. Now. I mean, it's, another it's big moment was bigger. a year earlier in, in 47 between, uh, before Truman happened in, in July of 48, Jackie Robinson integrated major league baseball in 47. And to this day, Every April the 15th, every Major League Baseball player wears jersey number 42 for that day in honor of the fact that that's the first day that Jackie Robinson walked on, a black man walked onto a Major League Baseball field and integrated Major League Baseball for the first time since the 1880s. They'd been playing in the Negro Leagues until Jackie Robinson came along. And they've made such wonderful movies and documentaries about that. So if yes. you haven't seen that, I encourage you to. Who is the star? Who's the actor? 
that plays Jackie Robinson. I've put us all on the spot. Man, here. I wish you had. We're asked going. Me that. We're going to look that up. But it's. it's it, he was. It's a, a it really. Was a, he was great a young movie. actor at the time. The movie's about fifteen years old now, mm-hmm. and I think he's gone on to have a good career in Hollywood. But I think at the time he was maybe was even an unknown. And I think Harrison Ford played one of the like maybe the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time who got him onto the team and helped to. I know that Harrison Ford was in the movie. It's been so long since I've seen it. I don't remember exactly. Uh, Chadwick Boseman played him in something. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, who thank is no you. But I'm, us, sitting here, I'm sitting here picturing That's right. his face. Yeah, He's I in Black Panther, Black Panther. Panther. And so many other things. And he just passed away a, a few yes. months ago. Yeah. Sadly. But yeah, that's it. Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman. Did an incredible job. The movie Jackie is Robinson. really, really good. I need to go home and watch it again tonight. Uh, let's fast forward to 1954. Plenty of things happen between 48 and 54. But in 54, Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation is, quote, inherently unequal and directed the nation as a whole to practice the end of, or to get to the end of segregation with, and I'm quoting again, all due haste. So there is a sense in the black community in in this country at the time that we are nearing the end of segregation. In 1955, this is another seminal moment, I think, in the civil rights movement. A 14-year-old boy from Chicago named Emmett Till uh, came down to Mississippi to visit his relatives and allegedly whistled at a white woman in a store. She went home and told her husband. Her husband and her brother-in-law went to Emmett Till's uncle's house, who he was visiting with in Muddy, Mississippi was the name of the town. Uh, Emmett Till was beaten and shot and had a 75-pound cotton gin fan wrapped around his neck with barbed wire and was tossed into a river. And when they found his body two days later, his mother insisted that, first of all, his body be sent back to Chicago for a proper burial because the, the folks in Mississippi just wanted to put him in the ground and pretend like it never happened. Mm-hmm. So they send him back to Chicago and she insists on having an open casket funeral. And if you've never seen the picture of Emmett Till's body at his funeral, you don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. But she insisted that that happened. And Jet Magazine, which was an African-American publication, uh, printed, the, uh, printed those photographs. Uh, two, those two men that I described were tried a couple, they were arrested a couple of weeks later and tried in a town just down the road from muddy Mississippi. Of course, they were exonerated from all charges by an all white jury. This is 1955 in Mississippi. And a few weeks later sold their story for $4,000 to look magazine, sort of like a people magazine publication where they admitted to the entire thing. And because of double jeopardy, they could never be tried for the crime again. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Two or three months later in 1955, the Montgomery bus boycott begins. Uh, Rosa Parks was was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man. That ended up lasting for 381 days before the bus company finally recapitulated and said, okay, it's fine. We won't make you sit in the back of the bus anymore because you are 65% of our business and we're going to go out of business if we don't stop this silliness. Of course, they didn't say silliness, I'm sure, but it's, it seems silly to us now. And that's when Martin Luther King Jr. comes along because he was a minister in Montgomery at the time, and he has had some civil rights concerns, and he sees this as an opportunity. Fast forward to 1957, the Little Rock Nine at Central High School in Arkansas. Those nine black students tried to go to high school. They were yelled at and spat upon and had things thrown at them. It took three weeks for President Eisenhower 
to realize that he needs to nationalize the Arkansas National Guard or to federalize the Arkansas National Guard. He also sent 100 U.S. Navy paratroopers to make sure that those kids got into their schoolrooms. And Eisenhower said quite succinctly, I think, mob rule cannot be allowed to overrule our court system because the Supreme Court had ruled, and we're in 57 now, so three years before, the Supreme Court said, no, Brown versus Board, desegregation has to happen, separate but equal, doesn't work anymore. We've talked about this before on this show. Right, So three years later, there's still, there's a movement of black people who are still trying to make sure that in the South, particularly, Brown versus Board is enforced. But, that's what causes Eisenhower to say, you idiots can't overrule the court system. We're going to implement these laws whether you like it or not, because it's the law of the land now. The Supreme Court has said so. Well, I mean, it's a mob, and, and we have to have law and order. We've talked about that exactly. in other episodes. When we were talking about Alex City, we were talking about um, no, Phoenix City. I'm Phoenix sorry. City. Phoenix yeah, City. You're right. Yeah. And law and order. Exactly. And, that's and why the- we have the laws on the books. We have to follow them. Um, and just incidentally, quickly, uh, the, all of those things that happened in Little Rock, Arkansas at Central High School led to folks like uh, journal. and I'm a journalist, even a mediocre one. I know who Mike Wallace is. I know who Dan Rather is. I know who John Chancellor was. And they, all, they were young reporters at the time, and they all came into prominence because of the coverage that they gave to the networks. The story in Little Rock was one of the first big nationwide stories, along with Emmett Till's pictures in Jet Magazine. That really... Uh, raised some hackles around the country. And then all there were reporters and TV cameras all over Little Rock, Arkansas when the thing was happening at Central High School. And these young reporters ended up, all of them ended up hosting network newscasts at some point in their careers. And they started to get those reputations for fairness and journalism in Little Rock. Uh, let's go to 1960. And that's when blacks started going into particularly Woolworth's department stores and in particular in Greensboro, North Carolina, to try and desegregate the lunch counters. Uh, Woolworth's had a little diner area where you could go in and sit down and order lunch and have a cup of coffee, and blacks weren't allowed to be served there. So they would go and sit at these lunch counters, either until they got beat up and dragged out by the police or by racist white people who didn't want them in their Woolworth's diner, or until someone served them. So that was another step towards equality, which happened in 1960, we'll go to May 1961 when the Freedom Riders decided they were going to get onto interstate buses. They were going to go from Washington, D.C. to New Orleans with many stops in between, Greyhound buses and Trailway buses, and walk into these bus stops that were segregated and sit down at the white lunch counter or go to the white people's bathroom or use the white people's water fountain. There's one bus famously that got to uh, a Greyhound bus that got to Anniston. And shortly after it rolled out of Anniston, a bunch of racists circled it, encircled it, set it on fire and stood outside the door with chains and whips and lead pipes and waited on those people to come out. And there were black people and white people on that bus supporting the desegregation of the interstate bus system at the time, waiting on them to come out so that they could beat them for standing up for civil rights. Uh, 62, James Meredith enrolls at the University of Mississippi. Uh, Two people died in the hullabaloo that ensued there. 
and I wish I could have thought of a better word than hullabaloo, but it was, it was a mess. Uh, two people died. One of them was a reporter from France who was there to cover the civil rights movement. Uh, they found him with a bullet hole in his head behind a woman's dorm. Uh, and Meredith was a veteran of the U.S. Air Force who could not go and get a college education because he was the wrong color. Uh, and now we're going to get to the year in question. Now we're into 1963. So in January of 1963, George Wallace, who lost the previous gubernatorial election in Alabama, Alabama in 58 to uh, James Patterson because he wasn't racist enough, Yep. as it turned out. And, and those are George Wallace's words, not mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. So in January of January the 14th, eight, uh, 1963, he is sworn in, and he famously says, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. That's January of 63. So in the spring of 63, really the story of the civil rights movement kind of starts to fade from the headlines in a sense. So Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth if you've ever flown out of Birmingham in the last few years, that is now mm-hmm. the Birmingham Shuttlesworth International yes. Airport. It's named after Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who was a civil rights icon. And a man named James Bevel, who was also involved in the civil rights movement, came up with the idea for a children's crusade. And this is, this is key to this whole story about the 16th Street Baptist Church. The children's crusade for civil rights, they decided that a lot of times adults, adult blacks, couldn't go to these protests and these marches and these uh, they would march from 16th Street Baptist Church to City Hall or to the Woolworths or to the Pazits where there was a lunch counter. And just, they were, it was a nonviolent protest. They were just marching with signs that said, we want our rights. We want to vote. We want to be treated like everybody else. That's what the Supreme Court says. It's time for that to happen. So they, Martin Luther King and Shuttlesworth and Bevel realized, let's get the kids involved. So the 16th Street Baptist Church becomes the headquarters of this movement. And this is in the spring of 63. Uh, Martin Luther King decided that they would go to Birmingham because he called it, quote, the most racially segregated city in America in 1963. So we've got the 16th Street Baptist Church and the Kelly Ingram Park right across the street. They were the rallying locations. And what they would do is they would send out groups. They would have a thousand young children from preschool, not preschool, elementary school, all the way up to seniors and juniors in high school. They would go into the church and they would get their marching orders, for want of a better phrase, and they would go out at 50 at a time and they would all go in different directions. And they were trying to keep the Birmingham police from being able to gather them all up at once. They were trying to make their job as hard as possible. Maybe one group doesn't get through, but maybe the next group does. But the 16th Street Baptist Church in Kelly Ingram Park was where a lot of these marches began. This was ground zero for these marches. Um, and at one time in the spring of 1963, we've all heard the name Bull Connor, unfortunately. <clears throat> he was the public safety commissioner for the city of Birmingham, which, mean, which meant that he had control over the police department, the fire department, uh, sanitation workers, the libraries, anything that was a public work in Birmingham at the time, it was under his purview. And so he decides that he is going to not let this happen. Uh, there is one time in, in early 63 where he arrests 959 kids at once in a day and takes them to jail. And that's the point of the children's movement, the children's crusade, 
is to overwhelm the legal system. They want to have the jails filled and have the court systems overrun where the the white people who run the city of Birmingham realize this is ridiculous. We should stop doing this. All they want is to be able to sit down and order a fucking sandwich. But we're still not there yet. Not by a long shot. So on in April of 63, Martin Luther King is among the people who are arrested, and that's when he writes his famous letter from Birmingham jail. Uh, and it's a moral argument for civil rights activism. The goal is to gain, and I'm, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I'm, this is a quote, the goal is to gain mass arrests of peaceful civil rights movements protesters and overwhelm the penal and justice systems. Uh, the letter was a response to a statement that had been, write, been written by <clears throat> eight members of the local white clergy in Birmingham that said, you really shouldn't be doing this. You're just let the court system figure it out. And Martin Luther King's response in the letter from Birmingham jail was, we've waited long enough. The court system isn't going to figure it out. And wait means never. And there's a lot more. If you, if you want to learn about what he wrote, it's a fantastic letter. I've read, I've read it all, but I didn't want to go into it here. But letter from Birmingham jail is, is moving. Uh, and it, lays out exactly what the civil rights movement was at the time. So let's go to May of 63. This is when there is, it's another one of those days, 16th Street Baptist Church. See, I just screwed it up. I told you I was going to mispronounce 16th Street Street. Baptist Church. Um, And so the kids are coming out of the church. They're gathering in Kelly Ingram Park across the way. This is May the 3rd. And Bull Connor decides that he, this, this is the day he's going to send in the attack dogs. And we've all seen those pictures, the attack dogs and the fire cannon. And according to Gene Roberts and Hank Klibanoff in their 2001 book, The Race Beat, The Press, The Civil Rights Struggle, and The Awakening of a Nation, those water cannons were called monitor guns. And what it did was they would take two separate fire hoses hooked up to two different fire hydrants and run them into this one gun. So that what was coming out of the nozzle of that monitor gun was the pressure of two fire hoses. It was very, very strong. Uh, the weapon could skin the bark off of a tree from 100 feet away. It grow, wow. According to the book that I read part of earlier today. <clears throat> they weren't trying to soft pedal this at all. Yeah. Uh, and you, know, you throw in the attack dogs and all of those images that we've seen all of our lives, sadly, those all happened between May the 3rd and May the 10th, 1963, in front of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Mm-hmm. I learned go, all of that on Saturday. If you go to the park, you can see the statues they have. They have the... A lot those, of sculptures around mm-hmm. the park that are dedicated to the, the movement itself. And, and the one attack of them, dogs. And the, yes. The mm-hmm. children and the... Yeah, you can, you can see all of that in the park. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you can. Uh, and then, so on May the 10th, uh, the, in addition to the, the movement that the, that the blacks were doing with the children's crusade, they were boycotting downtown businesses. And on May the 10th, Martin Luther King and a lot of the other folks got with the business leaders in Birmingham and they all agreed, let's desegregate the lunch counters. Let's uh, desegregate the restrooms and the fitting rooms and the drinking fountains. And let's not discriminate against black people when they apply for a job in the city of Birmingham. So progress had been made. Uh, One month later is when George Wallace stands in the schoolhouse door at Foster Auditorium on the campus of the University of Alabama to deny James Hood and Vivian Malone the right to become students. And we've all seen the photo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then in August of 63, Martin Luther King leads uh, the March on Washington. 250,000 peaceful protesters hear him give his famous I Have a Dream speech. And I watched a documentary on YouTube about that earlier today. 
And there is a, sec- a, a, a sequence where it shows movie stars coming off an airplane to be a part of it. And the three movie stars that I recognized, Charlton Heston, James Garner, and Marlon Brando were all very doing the best that they could or doing anything they could to try and convince people that, hey, it's the worm has turned, folks. It's time to not be racists anymore. And so now we get to the 16th Street Baptist Church itself. And just briefly, here's the story of the 16th Street Baptist Church. It was founded in 1873. The present sanctuary that I visited on Saturday and the site of the 1963 event was built in 1911. Uh, According to Wikipedia, they get about 200,000 visitors a year, not for regular services. These are people who come to see the church itself. Uh, It was designed by a man named Wallace Rayfield the second formerly educated black American architect practicing in the United States. He built mostly churches, I found out. But he was recruited by Booker T. Washington to head the mechanical drawing department at Tuskegee Institute in 1907. So four years after he was hired to assume that position, he designed the church. And it's a beautiful church. It's, it's really beautiful. I did not get to go inside the sanctuary, but I got to go down into the basement and talk to some folks there. And it's, it's really just a pretty, pretty church. So now we get to the events of September the 15th, 1963. The city has already been derisively referred to as Bombingham for years because there have been dozens of black homes and churches that have been bombed since the civil rights movement had begun. But in the early morning hours of September the 15th, which was a Sunday morning, Three members of the Ku Klux Klan, Robert Bob Chambliss, whose nickname was Dynamite Bob, Thomas Blanton, and Bobby Frank Cherry, and probably a few other people that we can't quite put our finger on, placed 15 sticks of dynamite under what was at the time a rear stairwell at the 16th Street Baptist Church. There is a monument that I saw on Saturday that is a box with the pictures of those four girls on it and their names and birth dates and death dates that is right in front of the window where a stairwell ended at the time. There was a second story landing, a second story landing that came down. It was a narrow staircase. Of course, it was obliterated, and they just never put it back. But it was a glass window, and right on the other side of that glass window was the... It wasn't the ladies' restroom. It was a, the ladies' lounge. There was, a, there was mm-hmm. some sinks and a couch, and these four little girls... And their names were Addie Mae Collins, she was 11, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, and Denise McNair. The three of them were all 14. And they were getting ready. They were running late. It was supposed to start at 10.15, I think, and it was 10.22 when the bomb went off, and they were still down there. Uh, but they, that's where they were when the bomb went off. And they never got to go up those stairs again, and 22 other people were injured, and they were killed immediately. And they were they were getting ready, and stop me if you're getting to this. Why, yeah. why they were down there getting ready? It was Youth Day, right? Or I don't know if that's exactly what they called it. Yeah, but they called it Youth Day. They were allowing the young people in their church to lead the service. They ran the entire. It was their mm-hmm. job that day that the youth was to lead the entire church that day. Yes. Yes. So they were getting ready for what they were going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And if you read any of the accounts of the survivor, she, she tells you that they were excited. Yeah. Addie Mae's sister 
who mm-hmm. survived mm-hmm. the bombing. She was and in the she, same room with them, mm-hmm. but she survived. And she was left with uh, no vision in one eye and 20%. Was it 20% loss in the other eye or just 20% in the other eye? I'm not sure exactly, but significant eye vision, or significant vision loss mm-hmm. overall and okay. one completely blind. Um, and I want, there's this one passage that I stumbled across today. I've had this book for, for 10 years. And it, I mentioned it earlier. It's called The Race Beat, the Press, the Civil Rights Struggle, and the Awakening of a Nation. It's by Glenn, uh, Gene Roberts and Hank Klibanoff. And somebody gave it to me a long time ago, and it's been on my bookshelf at work. And I knew when you assigned this story that there was probably some good information in here. And so I got it off the shelf on Friday, and I took it home. Give me a minute and a half, and I'll be done. But I, this is, I think this is important. So after the bombing took place, uh, the editor of the Atlanta Constitution, his name was Gene Patterson. He was mowing his yard in Atlanta when he found out about it. He'd already written his column for the Monday paper. But when he heard about the bombing, he started calling reporters who were on the scene. He read the news wires, and he became captivated by a report that a mother was walking around the ruins carrying one shoe from the foot of her dead daughter. Oh. And so he decided to rewrite his editorial column. And this is what ran in the, and I'm not going to read the entire thing. I picked out a few passages, uh, a couple of different sentences, but you'll get the gist of what it was that he felt as a white man in Atlanta in 1963 after this happened. A Negro mother in the street Sunday morning in front of a Baptist church in Birmingham. In her hand, she held a shoe, one shoe, from the foot of her dead child. We hold that shoe with her. Every one of us in the white South holds that small shoe in his hand. There is no time to load our anguish onto the murderous scapegoat who set the cap in the dynamite of our own manufacture. He didn't know any better. Somewhere in the dim and fevered recess of an evil mind, he feels right now that he has been a hero. He is only guilty, uh, <clears throat> he is only guilty of murder. He thinks he has pleased us. But we know better. We created that day. We bear the judgment. May God have mercy on the poor South that has been so led. With a weeping Negro mother, we stand in the bitter smoke and hold a shoe. If our South is ever to be what we wish it to be, we will plant a flower of nobler resolve for the South now upon these four small graves that we helped to dig. When that ran in the Atlanta Constitution on Monday, one Atlanta TV station called Patterson and had him read it on the air. And the next day, Walter Cronkite from CBS News called and asked Patterson if he could use a portion of that on the newscast. And by the time they'd put the newscast together, time they'd put the newscast together that night at CBS headquarters in Washington, they ended up running the entire column, which I did not read all of. But it's it's moving and it's fascinating and it's 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 how I feel as a white person who is from Alabama. I mean, this whole thing disgusts me. Yes, and I. Uh, I'm glad that at least back then, it warms my heart to know that back then somebody felt the way that I feel today about that and that they were, they had a pen and a jar of ink and were able to spread the word and at least say what they thought about it. Um, So the culmination of what happened, and I'm winding down now, the culmination of what happened in Birmingham at the 16th Street Baptist Church was that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed by Lyndon Johnson after JFK was assassinated in November of 1963. 
really JFK's legacy, if you think about it, because he had already decided this was a direction he wanted to go in. And Lyndon Johnson did not have to go in that direction, but he wanted to do it to honor John F. Kennedy. And I, I, whatever you have to say about President Johnson and the debacle that became Vietnam, he got this part right, in my opinion. Uh, that was the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then the Voting Rights Act of 65. Uh, and unlike a lot of white-on-black violence that took place in that era, there would end up being some justice at the end of this. And that's where my part stops. And that's where Katie's part begins. I'm going to go over their names. The names of... There were four KKK members that were looked into for this crime. We've got Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr., Herman Frank Cash, Robert Edward Shambliss. Yeah, Shambliss. Shambliss. Cash is the guy I forgot. And Bobby Frank Cherry. And I'm just going to refer to them by their last names from here on out. We've got Blanton, Cash, Shambliss, and Cherry. In 63, witnesses saw a white man exit a turquoise 1957 Chevy and walk towards the church steps. The man that these witnesses described could have been Cherry. It could have been Shambliss. They must have looked similar had similar features. And the FBI is beginning to investigate this bombing. And in September, Shambliss is questioned by the FBI. A couple of days later, he's indicted upon charges of illegally purchasing and transporting dynamite. So they can prove that he purchased this dynamite and illegally transported it. He and two acquaintances that are not... not any of the other four men uh, were convicted in state court on the charge of illegally possessing and transporting dynamite, like I said, and they are each given a $100 fine and had a suspended 180-day jail sentence. Sounds about right for the era, unfortunately. And that $100 fine in today's terms would be, I think I read, at $850, so still not a large fine yeah. even like today. In 1965, that is when the FBI officially releases the names of these four men as suspects. Witnesses were reluctant to talk, and physical evidence was lacking. They never really got anywhere at this time. In, but in their naming of the suspects, they named Shambliss as the ringleader. They're like, he, you know, he's the one who got them all together. He, he was the ringleader. FBI leader at the time, head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, I'm sure you know, most people know that name, Formally blocked any impending federal prosecution against these men. He refused to discuss any evidence with state and federal prosecutors. And in 1968, the FBI closed their investigation. And then he ordered that all those files be sealed. Is it, I mean, I don't know for a fact that J. Edgar Hoover was a flaming racist. Maybe he just didn't want to, infl- you know, I'm not going to make an excuse for him. That's, that's an atrocity, mm-hmm. as we will find out. The, so the FBI investigated from 1963 to 1968. That is five years of investigation with formal suspects being named. And then just let's close it up. And that was the statute of limitations, right? I mean, it was five years statute of limitations. Is that it? Is that why? No. Okay. Okay. They just decided that they okay. uh, that they 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 stated that they uh, the physical evidence was lacking and witnesses weren't willing to talk to them. So right. 
they closed up their files. And I can imagine being a witness to this during this time, how difficult it would be to want to come forward and how scary and dangerous it would be. Mm-hmm. Of course, the right thing to do is come forward. We're talking about four dead children. Um, but I can also understand being afraid at the time. I mean, the, the atmosphere, it's just a terrible, terrible dark time in our history. And you can understand after Scott going through the timeline, the fear that sure. was around that. Yeah. I mean, when there's no consequences to, to beating no black teenagers in the streets and, no. and zapping them with a, with a water cannon or, and turning dogs on to turning dogs children. On if there's I mean, no legal consequences exactly. to that, then why would you what speak up? Would you have? Why yeah. would you trust the system to then speak up? The system is broken. It, Correct. When the, so you can understand why they didn't have. I just didn't want us to to be too harsh on yeah, to vilify the witnesses too much because yeah. to paint the picture, you have to fully understand how dangerous it could have been for these witnesses. And you know, and and Katie mentioned this, and I did too, but we've forgotten in the last couple of minutes. I mean, we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan because there, if you were a member of the Ku Klux Klan or a, a family member. I mean, it was called the kiss of death. I mean, if you'd said or did anything to harm or damage the standing of anybody who was a fellow clan member, you might just disappear with something tied around your neck in a river. Well, when the governor of the state that you're in has become one of the most famous racists in history, that doesn't because, help. because he decided he lost an election because he wasn't racist enough. Yep. It, you know, it sets the tone for, all your citizens, really. It, yeah, and there's, there's many mentions of that that I didn't even get into. But yeah, when when the governor of the state is saying segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever, that's pretty much carte blanche to, to do whatever you want if you don't like black people. It doesn't make you feel motivated to come forward nope. and say anything. Mm. So we're in 1968, and this cl- case is closed. Thankfully, this is not the end of our story, but it is the end of our story today because this is going to be another two-parter for us. Cliffhanger, Jake Graves is going to hate this. I told him earlier today that we were planning on recording a two-part episode, and he did that exasperated look that Jake does sometimes mm. and said, please don't do that. And I said, oh, yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> so two parts, Jake. Sorry. If he made it this far into it. Yeah, good point. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We will be back next week with so much more on this case. We are we're just skimming the surface. We will get into the rest of it and the ending next week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to give us a five-star review. Give us an email. If you want a shout-out, give us a comment. We can't wait to shout you out. Yeah, we would love to do that, but we don't we're we're saving the ones that we have for the end of the part two, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Make you come back. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, Katie. (laughs) Johnny.